our interview with Dr. Jamie Matthews was an experience that can't quite be communicated through just sound alone. Uh, we think it's essential that we transport you into his office, down a long corridor in the quiet, sterile Hennings Building in the UBC campus. The building itself could be the setting of any cliche high school TV show, teen drama, barren white walls lined with gray lockers. Its only distinguishing characteristic is, you know, the odd Crab Nebula poster that lets you know that it's an astronomy building. There's this one office, and a lucky few that are granted access to this office, as Dan and I were last week, they will experience what astronomy really looks like. Now, I'm an English major myself. Ooh, should I not say that? Yes, it's true. And most of the English professor's offices are lined with books overflowing like you're going to get destroyed in an avalanche of Chaucer and Milton. But his office is overflowing with something much better. Hollywood paraphernalia of every sci-fi movie ever made, every alien creature ever thought of, every toy action figure from any movie that you can think of. Everything from Captain Kirk to Jabba the Hutt, Hell 9000, even Dr. Evil. If it has to do with space, it is in that office, on the walls, covering every inch. And I should mention, this is a man who has the Order of Canada, who is the mission scientist of a space telescope, Canada's only space telescope, and this is a man who's been working in a field that's only existed since 1992, the field of exoplanet research, where we're trying to find planets going around other stars in the universe. And and yet, when you're in his office, you can't make up your mind which toy to play with. I mean, I, ma- I imagine we're not supposed to play with any of them, because like, they're all probably worth a ton of... They're all great. Yeah, I know what you mean. And you, you totally forget that you're in the office to actually film a podcast. Yeah. But Dr. Matthews is a pro, and he wasn't as distracted by all his awesome toys as we were. So as soon as we put a mic in front of him, the rest was, as they say, astronomy. So, ladies and gentlemen, we present to you Dr. Jamie Matthews, and welcome you to the Escape Podcast. It's time to leave the capsule, if you dare. Well, the problem is, is that planets are faint and far away. Even the planets in our solar system, there are only five that you can see without a telescope. Mercury, which isn't all that easy to, to spot by eye, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And, well, the sixth planet, the Earth, if you look down, you don't need a telescope. Uh, But, you know, those are all, you know, a few hundred million kilometers away, which is just, you know, no distance whatsoever in an astronomical sense. You know, the next nearest star to us is about 300,000 times further away than the sun. And so if it's hard to see planets, you know, that are uh, a few astronomical units away, the scale that we use for the solar system, you can imagine it's not easy to see planets when they're several hundred thousands of astronomical units away, and those are our nearest neighboring stellar systems. So one, they're far, two, they're faint. Uh, So we can't really take pictures of them. There have been some uh, uh, imaging in, at infrared wavelengths of what might be planets, might be failed stars, you know, if it looks like a duck and 
waddles like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's probably a duck, but you never know, depending on how it's formed, the difference between, you know, where do you draw the line between a, a, a giant gas giant planet like Jupiter and a failed star, a brown dwarf. So these planets give off effectively no reflected light from their stars? That's right. We see them, we see them by reflected light. Uh, and at infrared wavelengths, we can see them sometimes because of the infrared emission of their own warmth. Um, but at optical wavelengths, what, what you, know, you and I see by eye, uh, if you were looking to take a picture of, say, the Earth uh, next to the sun, the Earth is about a billion times fainter than the sun. Jupiter is about a million times fainter. If you look in the far infrared, uh, well, that's, the sun isn't as bright it, it puts out most of its light at the wavelengths that we see by eye. Probably not a coincidence that we, our eyes are tuned to that wavelength range. Uh, and so it's fainter. And planets are brighter because they're warm. I mean, by, uh, by human standards, they can be very cold. But by physics standards, as long as you're above absolute zero, uh, you are warm. They put out their own thermal emission. Uh, and the star is fainter, and so the contrast is better. But even there, uh, at, at infrared wavelengths, you know, Jupiter uh, is, uh, or the, the Earth is a million times fainter uh, than the Sun. So we have to look in a different way. We have to use indirect techniques, you might even think of them as tricks, in order to see what are essentially invisible planets, as far as we're concerned, around their parent stars. And those, the two main techniques, the first technique, the one that led to the discovery uh, that you mentioned in the introduction in 1992, uh, is the radio velocity method, or the Doppler wobble technique. I, uh, that's how I usually use it, rolls it's off the tongue. Move. It sounds, yeah, it sounds like a dance move or a new Disney character. And hey, they've bought Lucasfilm, so that'll be on the Star Wars Episode Seven. they'll be Darth Doppler wobble duck or whatever. Uh, but, so... It's the fact that we think of the planets in our solar system orbiting around the sun, with the sun at the center of the solar system. That's not quite the way it is. It really is a dance move. And you said the Doppler wobble sounds like a dance. And really, the sun and the planets are dance partners because they're held together by a mutual gravitational attraction. Force of gravity is a mutual thing. So, you know, we are being pulled down towards the center of the Earth by gravity against the ground. That's what gives us weight. But we are also pulling on the Earth with exactly the same force. Force equals mass times acceleration. Well, the mass of the Earth is so much larger than any of our masses that the Earth accelerates us significantly, almost 10 meters per second per second, but we accelerate the Earth negligibly. Same kind of deal between the sun and planets. You know, the sun is keeping uh, a planet like the Earth in an orbit because of uh, gravitational attraction, but the Earth is also pulling in the sun. And so the sun has to respond to that. And it's just now, it's unequal dance partners. You know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the sun is 320,000 times more massive than the Earth. And so uh, when they dance together in their orbital dance, they, they, they move around a balance point between them, a center of mass. Uh, except that center of mass is closer to the more massive thing. 
And if the more massive thing is 320,000 times more massive, then that point is 320,000 times closer to the center of it. Uh, Jupiter is the most massive planet in our solar system, and it's still one one-thousandth of the mass of the sun, one-tenth uh, of a percent. And so the balance point there is a thousand times closer to the center of the sun than it is to Jupiter. Jupiter being the most massive dance partner next to the sun, it's the one that causes the sun to move, make the, the most substantial dance moves. Jupiter takes 12 years to go around the sun, really 12 years to go around this balance point, center of mass, and so, so does the sun. The sun describes a small orbit uh, around the center of mass once every 12 years due to Jupiter, uh, but the balance point is just on the edge of the sun. So the sun wobbles on its edge and it completes one wobble every 12 years due to Jupiter. It doesn't complete the same dance step every time because Jupiter is not the only dance partner. You know, there's Saturn and Uranus and Neptune and the Earth and so on, and, but they are less influential dance partners if you smooshed all of the other planets in the solar system together to make one big planet, still wouldn't be as massive as Jupiter. So our solar system is almost like a binary system. Sun and Jupiter, and then everything else is almost secondary. But if you look at the, you know, the way that the sun is forced to move, uh, the reflex motions uh, due to the orbits of the planets, uh, you know, it's doing this tiny little swing dance, and, and the big moves are these 12-year-long uh, loops uh, due to Jupiter, but then there are other little wiggles and, and changes in that due to the other planets. So if there are aliens, and they were looking at the sun... They, if they had the you know, sensitive enough techniques, uh, they could tell that there were planets around our sun, even if they couldn't see them, by measuring the wobble of the sun in its dance. If they had our techniques, would they be able to tell that there was Jupiter, or would they be able to tell that there was Earth as well? So the, uh, the, the, if they had our techniques, they'd just be kind of on the sensitivity of Jupiter. The, the reason why isn't so much the technique, but the time. Jupiter takes 12 years to go around the sun once. And, and we have only had the capability to, to make these kinds of sensitive measurements you know, you know, since uh, essentially the, you know, the late 1970s, early uh, uh, 1980s. And at, those, at that time, the first survey was only two dozen stars. And there's only been surveys now that include, you know, thousands of stars that have been going on for, oh, maybe 15 or so years. Uh, the Kepler space mission we talk about later is 150,000 stars. It's looking in a different way, but it's only been looking for about three and a half years. So the, the problem is, is if you want to convince yourself there's a planet, you have to make sure that you're seeing that, 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 that it's a repeated dance move, that the, that the star is moving back and forth and then continuing to move back and forth with some periodic fashion induced by an unseen planet. And if you've only been looking for 15 years, and uh, the planet's orbit is longer than 15 years, then you might say, I think there's something there, but I've got to wait for a while to confirm it. And so that's the state where we are just on the threshold of convincing ourselves that we can see uh, Jupiter's and Jupiter-sized orbits around other sun-like stars. But if you drag Jupiter in a lot closer uh, to its parent star, so that rather than taking 12 years to go around, it takes four days to go around once, then you can see that. Uh, and in fact, 
that was the first widely recognized uh, by the community uh, planet around a sun-like star that was found in, in 1995. Uh, something about the size and mass of Jupiter, but uh, orbiting 20 times closer to its sun than we orbit from our sun. And Jupiter in our solar system orbits five times further away. So this was a complete surprise. No one expected this. Uh, but, you know, those are the easiest things to spot. The more massive the planet and the shorter the, the period of its orbit, the smaller its orbit, the easier it is to find. And those were the first things that we found. And then we've been working our way outward in parameter space and looking out into space, but looking into what scientists would consider parameter space, you know, uh, orbital semi-major axis, size of the orbit, uh, the, the you know, sizes of planets, masses of planets, those sorts of things. And we're starting to get to smaller and smaller planets and larger and larger orbits. Uh, and, uh, and it will just, you know, we'll, we'll continue to explore that virtual parameter space to fill in, uh, fill in the gaps. You said that there was another way to find planets, and you mentioned the, space, the Kepler yeah. Space Telescope, and I see you're wearing a shirt that says, <laughs> Got Planets, and then there's a, a caption that says Kepler. Yep. So I'd like uh, if you could tell us a little bit how Kepler works. Okay. So the, 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 the first discoveries, and I should point out actually that you know, the, you know, the first recognized uh, discovery of planets around a star other than the sun wasn't even by this uh, you know, it wasn't around a sun-like star, but planets around a pulsar, the corpse of a star which had exploded as a supernova and left behind a rapidly spinning neutron star beaming out radio waves like a lighthouse beacon. Uh, and the, the last place that you'd expect to find planets because, you know, you, you, you might expect a star to have planets before it explodes, but you don't really expect them to be around after the star explodes. And you don't really expect planets to form in the aftermath of that explosion. So these are kind of mysterious worlds, but they, they seem to be almost exceptions to the, the rule. There's really only one uh, system that everyone seems to accept. There might be one or two others that have tantalizing evidence for them. Uh, so when I'm talking about the, these techniques and the planet discoveries, I tend to be talking about the planets that everybody else thinks about when they hear the word planet. Something around a stable star like the sun or a, a lower mass and longer lived than the sun. Uh, planets that could be solid, you know, like the earth and which you could have potentially oceans and, and life, and gas giant and ice giant planets like uh, you know, we, you know, Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune in our solar system, uh, around uh, living, stable stars. And so the, the, the first techniques for the discoveries of those, this Doppler wobble technique, looking at literally at the Doppler shifts of the wavelengths of the light of the star as it moves back and forth, and seeing those tiny little shifts. And, and, the, and the technique to be able to measure shifts that tiny was pioneered, you know, actually right here in, in British Columbia uh, at, uh, at UBC and at, the, at UVic, the University of Victoria, in the late 70s and early 80s. Mainly so. UBC. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually a pretty good partnership. Um, the... Uh, we'll fact but, check that one. Okay. The, the, other, te the, the other technique... Um, you know, that has been very successful is uh, not 
not actually looking at how the wavelengths of the light from a star are being changed by the star's uh, you know, dance moves with its unseen planetary dance partner, mm-hmm. but how the, the light from the star can drop if the, the, the dance partner gets in the way. Uh, if you're on the dance floor and you see the, the two partners twirling around, occasionally one partner is in front of the other. And if the planetary dance partner orbits in front of its stellar uh, partner, then basically it blocks a little bit of the light coming from the star. And you can't see it as a, you know, you can't resolve it the way we can see the sun as a disk and a little uh, chunk uh, cut out of the sun. We can see that in our solar system when the planets Mercury and Venus pass in front of the sun as seen from the Earth. We don't call it an eclipse because uh, they're not big enough to block out the entire uh, uh, light of the disk of the, of the sun like the moon is. The moon's not very big, but it's very close. And so its angular size is enough to block out the bright disk of the sun. But uh, Mercury and Venus are far enough away uh, that they only take out a tiny chunk of the sun in, in, uh, as they pass in front. But we, you know, we can see those and we can image that. The same kind of thing happens for other planetary systems, uh, but we can't see it, but we can measure the dip in the light every time the planet passes in front of the star. And it's like clockwork because the planet completes an orbit in a particular amount of time, and so it's dip, 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 except that the time between the dips isn't necessarily like a second, like just there. It can be days, it can be weeks, it can be years, it, it it's probably can be decades and hundreds of years, but we just don't have the, the time baseline to check that out. And so, but you need to be fairly sensitive to the to changes in the brightness of the star, because even a, a planet as large as Jupiter passing in front of a star Uh, like the sun, makes a dip of maybe 1% or 2%. You can measure that from from the ground through the the turbulence of the Earth's atmosphere uh, with moderate-sized telescopes. But a a planet the size of the Earth passing in front of a star like the sun makes a dip of about uh, a factor of... uh, uh, you know... One one uh, you know one one hundredth of uh, of a percent one ten thousandth, and so you've got to be able to measure changes in brightness, at least at a level ten times better that than that maybe more so one part in a hundred thousand one part in a million, uh, in order to do that, and we didn't have that capability until the Canadian Space Telescope that was uh, uh, designed and and built and and, and tested and is operated here at UBC, uh, as well as at uh, stations in Toronto and Vienna, uh, and then the the NASA mission called Kepler, uh, and there's also a French mission called Corot, had this kind of capability of being able to see uh, variations in the brightnesses of some stars down to the level of uh, a few parts in a million. That's equivalent to going to New York City at night looking at the Empire State Building. And uh, all the lights are on. All the office window shades are completely open. And you could make the, the Empire State Building fainter by one part in a million, by one ten thousandth of a percent. 
by having one person stand at one window and pull down one window shade by three centimeters. Uh, and that's what you, that's the kind of precision that you need if you wanted to detect the transit dips due to Earth's around other stars, you know, other sun-like stars. And that's the capability that we've had now for a few years. And MOST is a, the, that's the name of Canada Space Telescope, the acronym for it, although we nicknamed it the Humble Space Telescope. Humble, uh, humble yeah. MOST is an exoplanet explorer. It doesn't look at enough stars to do a good census. Because think about it, you want to have a planet pass in front of its parent star if you want to detect that transit dip. Except that the orbital planes of other planetary systems are oriented randomly. They aren't lined up like with the plane of the galaxy, with anything. And so it's just a kind of statistical geometrical exercise that uh, you know only a few percent of all of the planetary systems out there will be lined up that from our perspective in the galaxy that planets will pass in front of their parent stars. Uh, and if we were somewhere else in the galaxy, we would all see a different several percent of that sample of planets from a different perspective. And transits so, of Venus and Mercury aren't even that common. No, Earth. no, they're not that common from Earth, but at least we're, we know that they're almost in the same plane in terms of the orbital plane of the Earth. But for other planetary systems, the, the orientations of those orbital planes are independent of one another. And so it's just geometric probability. So you've got to look at a lot of stars if you want to have a good chance, good statistical chance of finding transiting planetary systems. And that's where the NASA Kepler mission, it's the one that's doing the, you know, the exoplanetary equivalent of the long-form census. Uh, it's looking at more than 150,000 stars continuously. It's staring at a, a particular direction in the sky near the constellation Cygnus, the Swan, the Northern Cross. And in that direction, we've picked out uh, more than 150,000 stars, uh, most of them kind of sun-like or, or, or smaller than the sun, like cool uh, red dwarfs, long-lived, stable, boring stars. Boring is good if you're looking for... Uh, planets that can support life because if you're on a planet around an exciting star that explodes uh, or, or erupts in super flares probably not good for life on that planet so boring is good and we tend to look for boring and uh, look in boring stars but out of you know like 150,000 stars Statistically, depending on what the orbits of planets are like, and that's what we're finding out now. What are the statistics uh, of planet sizes, planet masses, planet orbits? What kind of stars are they found around? We, you know, we, we never knew, and we are starting to answer those questions. We're literally starting to fill in some of the blank numbers in the Drake equation for the number of worlds that might have uh, advanced civilizations on them and some of the early fractions in that, in that equation. Uh, but you got to look at a lot of stars. And out of those 150,000 uh, stars that have been searched now for about three and a half years, there are hundreds uh, of detections and thousands of candidates that need to be followed up. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not unreasonable to expect after all is said and done uh, in this mission that out of 150,000 stars that uh, we may have discovered 5,000.
planets, maybe 10,000. That was the purpose of the Kepler mission. The, you know, the main selling point of Kepler was, you know, we will, if they're out there, Kepler will find Earth-sized planets in Earth-sized orbits around sun-like stars. It'll find planets that are in the habitable zone that are capable of having liquid water oceans, one of the ingredients that we need for life on our planet, uh, uh, if they're out there. Okay, so we have found planets that are Earth size and even smaller than Earth size. Um, but uh, we and we have found planets that are slightly bigger than the Earth, which we call super Earths, uh, which are in the habitable zone at a distance from their parent star where uh, it, it would be possible to have liquid water with the temperatures between, you know, 100 degrees Celsius and zero degrees Celsius. How do you know something like that? Because it's basically just the, the physics of, of radiation. If you, the star puts out a certain amount of energy, if you're at a certain distance from that star, then that energy is spreading out over a larger and larger area. That's the inverse square law. And so you can figure out how much, how much photon energy is striking the surface of a planet at a given distance. Uh, and depending on how much of it is absorbed and re-radiated, that will heat the surface of the planet. And so you can determine the, the, what, uh, the thermal equilibrium in that system. You know, uh, one, one can't read too much into the habitable zone, and sometimes it is misinterpreted, because all it is is that it's, it's a range in which a, a planet that has a solid surface uh, has at least the bare minimum capabilities of supporting liquid water oceans doesn't mean there are liquid water oceans. You know, in our own planet, it's now widely believed that the, the water from the oceans didn't come from the interior of the planet through volcanic action, but were delivered here from space through comet impacts, things called Kuiper belt objects and so on. That, that, and these icy bodies rained down on the Earth and, and delivered the water, which now represents our oceans. So whether does that mechanism work elsewhere around other planetary systems? Are there other mechanisms? These are the kinds of questions, the, the things that we're exploring now. And even if you have a liquid water ocean, doesn't mean that you have life, even life as we know it. Uh, even if you have organic molecule building blocks uh, and you have liquid water, um, there's lots of other things that you, know, you need for a stable environment for life to evolve. You know, the fact that we have a big moon uh, relatively speaking, compared to the Earth, that that stabilizes the spin of this uh, of the planet Earth, and keeps our seasons kind of regular. Uh, whereas a planet like Mars, which doesn't have a large moon, uh, all indications are that its rotation axis swings wildly. And when an astronomer says wildly, we mean over uh, tens of millions of years, or hundreds of millions of years. But you know, it will it can swing to being you know, at an, an angle like it is now, very similar to the tilt of the Earth's uh, rotation axis, 20, you know, close to 23 and a half degrees. But it can, it could, in principle, be swinging on its side, uh, like Uranus, and or at a 90 degree angle where there would be no seasonal variations during its orbit. And so, you know, a place that that was the North Pole, and then has a climate like the North Pole here within, you know, a few tens of millions of years can then suddenly be like the tropics because now it's pointing at the sun for a while. And then later it's back to being, 
the Arctic uh, polar, uh, you know, environment again. You know, can can life, simple life, tolerate and and develop under those circumstances where you keep changing the the playing field? Uh, you know, so that sometimes you know you're you're in the tropics, sometimes you're in the frozen Arctic, and then back again. Uh, and tens of millions of years is a very short period of time in terms of an evolutionary biology timescale. So there are lots and lots of other things that you need to check off in order for there to be even simple life, let alone complex life. But you know, we we've got to start with what we know. There's one place. In the universe, where we know that there's life, unless you think that you know, the TV show Fringe is a is a documentary series, or the X Files was a documentary series, is here life 1.0. We're looking for life 2.0. You know, we we have to be careful not to be too Earth centric. You know, that's why I keep emphasizing life as we know it. But you got to start with what you know, and you got to be open to the signatures for things that you didn't expect. I would say, based on, on on what we found so far in terms of the you know the numbers of planets out there, uh, and, and the circumstances of the planets, and we're finding small, you know, smaller and smaller planets where you know we if if they're out there, you know, we will find Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone. And keep in mind when uh, sometimes you might hear an astronomer say Earth-like, but in terms of the search techniques we have, Earth-like just means. Similar in size, in diameter, and in mass, uh, and in orbital properties to the Earth. It doesn't mean like that. There's Don Cherry and uh, and Lady Gaga. I mean, I think most astronomers, including myself, believe that there's life out there and complex life out there, but there is no evidence for it yet. Uh, and I grew up in a generation influenced by Carl Sagan and by Star Trek. We now know more, and even the people involved in SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, have become more conservative. Even at their most optimistic now, they would probably argue about there being tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, of, of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy at this moment, and they would concede that there might only be a handful, and that there might only be one. We might, you know, it is not out of the realm of possibility that you know we're the only one at this time in our Milky Way galaxy that's reached, you know, is at at, at this level, uh, you know, technological development, biological complexity. Now, in the if that turned out to be the case, say that was the average number that there was only a handful per galaxy, you know, and even if there were only one per galaxy, just for the sake of pessimistic argument, in the part of the universe that we can observe. From which light has had a chance to reach us in the age of the universe since the Big Bang, we estimate there are hundreds of billions, probably trillions of galaxies. And so, if there was only one planet in each of those galaxies that had one intelligent civilization and you know complex life forms like us, that's still hundreds of billions, maybe trillions, in the entire universe. The difference is. It's no longer a Star Trek Federation of Planets because now our nearest neighbor isn't, uh, uh, you know, a few tens of light years away. Our nearest neighbor is two million light years away, and a conversation 
you know, with them is you know we, we send out a signal saying hello how are you two million years later that arrives they respond and you know four million years after we said hello how are you we hear uh, uh, hi I'm fine how are you uh, so you wouldn't have the kind of commerce the kind of interaction that you see in the kind of the Star Trek version of the galaxy it would be a very different situation but we don't know I mean we, we, we literally don't know until we look I think if you talk to almost any knowledgeable scientist who works somewhere in the you know related to fields like you know uh, exoplanets uh, and exobiology uh, you know whether they're microbiologists biochemists astronomers uh, the physicists uh, evolutionary biologists I think you will find the consensus is, is that they all believe that simple life is common uh, but uh, that there are lots and lots of places where you will find microbial life in the universe and in our galaxy. But that complex life may not be as common as we used to think. What do you mean by not so common? Like I said, if there are hundreds of thousands of cases of complex life, and, you know, planets with complex life in our galaxy, that's still quite a few. Um, so that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to find out. And keep in mind, notice that earlier when I talked about intelligent civilizations in our galaxy I, I kept saying at this time time is a, is also one of the, the variables here because we don't know how long a complex species survives I and mean, a civilization lasts Do civilizations typically wipe themselves out or evolve into something else after you know a few centuries or uh, or a few millions of years we, we, we don't know keep in mind that the story of life on earth you know, and that's a story that, based on the earliest fossil evidence we have for simple life, is at least three and a half billion years long in a, in a planet which has been around for four and a half billion years. That in that story, and it's a thick book, but us, and even complex life, we represent like the last paragraph in the last chapter of a really long book. And Finding other places, other planets, and other planets that could support life, that, that is a, a vital step in, in trying to, to basically understand the processes of microbiology and evolutionary biology and biochemistry. I think that's a perfect place to end it. It's a grand case. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> thank you very much to Dr. Jamie Matthews, and uh, thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the second episode of the Escape Podcast. Big thank you goes out to the UBC Astronomy Club for helping us distribute this. To Katie So for drawing the awesome rocket ship logo, which we got. Of course, to Jamie Matthews for providing our talk this week. And uh, all of our music is uh, made especially for the podcast and performed live during the interview. Did you know that? We performed live, so that's all the sounds you're hearing is what it sounds like when we're in the room. That's maybe true. And we encourage you to keep looking online for more episodes of the Escape Podcast. Just type in Escape Podcast, one word, in the iTunes Podcast Store. Thank you. I'm Stephen Morgan. And I'm Dan Clouston. And this was the Escape Podcast. Come escape with us again.